going to go ahead and dismiss all of our kids ages 3 through 9. All of our kids ages 3 through 9. You are dismissed to go back with Miss Liz. For those of you who are staying with us, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. To the book of Romans chapter 5. Now, many of you may be saying, wait a minute, I thought we were in a sermon series on 1 Samuel. And we are. Normally, I don't like to do, um, I, I don't like to break up my sermons for, for Mother's Day or Father's Day. Um, you know, a lot of times what my observation um, when we do those is we, we can tend to, um, if you, your typical Mother's Day is we, we tend to want to place the mother as like the fourth member of the Trinity. And then on Father's Day, we just want to beat them down completely and utterly. And so there's certainly there's. Uh, we want to give all of our moms honor and due respect. But in general, um, I like to just keep on with what we're doing. However, where we are in 1 Samuel and 1 Samuel 15 deals with some pretty difficult stuff. And the passage itself is dealing with obedience. However, it does deal with one of the things that um, a lot of times atheists or those who struggle with Christianity really struggle with, which is sometimes the commands for genocide. And so I really feel like before we can move into that, we need to, need to deal with that very difficult topic. And covering genocide on Mother's Day just did not seem wise. So we are going to take a break from 1 Samuel 15 just for today. And we're going to do a special sermon in Romans chapter 5. And so hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God... By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. Enable it to pass quickly from our eyes and our ears, into our hearts, into our very wheels and out into our tongues and into our hands and to our feet. That we might know your truth, we might internalize it and it might take its shape in good fruit for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, a lot of times Mother's Day 
it's often filled with a certain amount of pressure. Now, some of you guys, some of you spouses may be feeling that pressure because you're saying, ooh, there's a certain amount of pressure that I get this right. Maybe some of you kids may be feeling that certain amount of pressure. But also what I found, and from my experience in pastoral ministry, some of the moms often feel a lot of pressure. In fact, moms on other moms can actually add some of the highest pressure that you'll ever find. Not only is there pressure to show appreciation, but there's a certain amount of pressure that do we feel worthy of such appreciation. And there's a sense that it almost can often create this existential angst within us, this stressor that comes into us. And, and I find it interesting because this is true in so much of our lives. As much as we are trying to become a secular culture that, that tries to free ourselves from all social norms, from all pressure, from all sense of you have to conform in this way, there is no morality. What I find so interesting is yet within that, that kind of propaganda of what our supposed secular culture brings us, what in fact sociological study after sociological study has shown that we are more stressed out, we are more pressured, we are more depressed and we're more anxious than we have ever been. We feel that pressure just grinding and closing in all around us. And I find it interesting that as much as, and this is, I think, a very good thing in many regards, we want to remove kind of all glass ceilings. We want to empower women in ways that we've never been empowered before. But yet, within the messaging, rather than feeling more free, we're finding girls especially, and women especially, are becoming more and more depressed, more and more discouraged, more and more thoughts of suicide. Now, we'll try not to get too dark. I mean, after all, I am avoiding genocide this morning. We don't want to go in another direction. But at the same time, what it says to us is we are a people that are longing for a hope that actually frees us. We are longing for something that can set us free from the pressures, from the things. And oftentimes these are pressures that are internal pressures that we put upon ourselves, anxieties. And oftentimes what we found is more decisions, more openings actually can become more paralyzing. We become more worried about what we should do. What is the path of, that will lead us to the longest fulfillment? And we're feeling more and more crushed by the weight of expectations, more and more crushed within us by the pressures to excel, the pressures to be all things, the pressures to have no limits within us. It can be really quite crippling. The antidote to this, and we often want to look for the antidote to, to come and note some new form of therapy, some new form of technology, some new form of freedom. And while all of these things are good and valuable, the ultimate cure 
the ultimate elixir for that which we need isn't going to come from something new. But rather, instead, it is something old, ancient, going back to the very fabric of creation, in fact. And it is what we are talking about today. And in fact, it is in this passage that if you ever come to me for counseling, or if you've come to me in the counseling of the past, you'll know that this is one of my go-to passages for people who are struggling, who are hurting. Now, you might wonder about that because as I read it, I'm talking about justification by faith. And you might say, well, how does that? I can see how that would be an important passage for someone who is not a believer, who is not a Christian. But I've been a believer for 20, 30 years. Why on earth would this become an important passage in dealing with the everyday existential angst and pressure that I am dealing with in my life today? And the answer to what we find is is it gives us a present reality of hope. Yes, it does very much explain the way in which we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. That wondrous gem that we have that is the treasure of ours in our relationship with Christ. The wonder and the sweep of his redemption towards us. That we can be made right with God. That we can know God. That we can become... Heirs of the promise of God, that we can be saved from our past of sin and all that we have done, the guilt that we have done by believing in the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are saved not by anything we do, but by faith. Oh, that is beautiful for the one who does not know Jesus. But it's beautiful just as much And just as relevant for the believer who has known Christ for 50 years is a truth that we must continue to dig into and unearth its gems. Because believe me, I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how much scripture you know. You have not begun to unearth the rich treasure of what this means in our life. It has incredible application, yes, in how we can know Jesus Christ. But you cannot begin to fathom how important it is in our sanctification as well. As we unearth this wonder of the gospel. And it's not really subtle when we really begin to look into it. Because... What it does is it speaks to a very present reality of hope that we have. Now, if we were to look through the book of Romans, which, of course, we're picking up in chapter 5, but Paul has been making the case to this Roman people, and he's writing to them probably for two reasons. One is he's hoping that they would become an evangelistic partner for him, that he might be able to stop at them. This is not a church he founded. That he might stop there on his way to Spain and they might be able to greet him and that he might be able to impart this theological gift, this spiritual gift to them. And they might send him on his way on his evangelistic journey to Spain. But he's also writing to them because this is a people that is struggling. There's some conflict that was going on. This isn't a church he started, but it was started And when it was originally started, it was started as a a group of both Jews and Gentiles there in this Rome, which was the capital city of the, the greatest empire of the world at that time. 
But what had happened is all the Jews were expelled out of Rome. They had to leave Rome because of the chaos that was taking place as Christianity was coming in. So the emperor expelled all the Jews out, which meant that this new baby church was filled with nothing but Gentiles during a a period of, I think it was like five years. But now the Jews have been welcomed back. Those of Jewish ethnicity are welcomed back in. And so now you have these Jewish Christians who have been expelled and isolated from the church are coming back into this church that for five years or so has been completely ran by Gentiles. And so there's this little bit of a tension that's taking place. They've been having a very Gentile style in theology, and now there's this tension of, what do we do? We're the Jews. We actually should are the ones who really know how you're supposed to do church. And we're coming back, and you guys have been messing up, and the Gentiles are like, hey, we've been doing fine for five years without you. Thank you very much. So Paul is addressing this conflict in a very subtle way with this theology of the gospel. And so he had been talking to them and he begins with the universal wrath of God that we, in our own sinfulness, turned our backs on God and the truthfulness of who he is. And God gave us up. Gave us up to our own desires. And he goes on to explain that this is true for for, for the Gentile, that they're without excuse, but also the Jew, though they have the oracles of God, they too are insufficient in and of themselves. They too need a savior. They too need to be justified by faith. They are no better simply because they are Jewish, because they have the Old Testament law. And so in chapter four, he makes the case quite powerfully, that that we are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. And he looks back to the Old Testament to Abraham to point out that, see, even in the Old Testament, Abraham himself was justified by faith. He believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And so now there's a little bit of a transition as he's working in the book of Romans. He's been talking about justification. He's going to begin to talk now about the life of the believer. What does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to be one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ? And so this section serves as a little bit of a transition. It's it's highlighting the realities of justification by faith, but it's moving into the life, new life that was in us. One of the things that makes clear right off the bat is the life that we have in Christ is a life of fullness. And so you see kind of this emphasis that takes place in these these short 11 verses. Because what we see is five different times he says to the believer, the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we have, we have. And so five different times he makes it says, we have. And this is a reality for you to grasp, friend. This is something that if you come in here, you know Jesus Christ. He's saying you are already coming in and you have certain things. You have certain truths, certain realities. And they are glorious realities that are yours to hold on to and to grasp on to this morning. You may feel completely drained. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these are yours that you have. 
And if you're not a believer, by faith, these can be yours. And the first thing that we see, the first I have, verse 1, is that we have been justified, verse 1. Now, what's interesting in this is this is a past tense. He isn't saying we will be justified. We have, past tense, you have been justified by faith. By faith. And what does it mean to be justified? That can be somewhat of a, 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 you know, a little bit of an intimidating word if we're not familiar with it. And what it means, in, sense, in essence, is you have been declared righteous. Think of it almost like the sense in which you've been into court. Right? If you've ever been in jury duty or, unfortunately, if you've ever been into court and you stand before the judge, the case has been made. And the case has been made, and the judge declares you innocent. You're innocent. You're declared innocent. But why are you declared innocent? Not because you were actually innocent, but because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Because you have placed, and you said, the payment, the atonement for my sin was accomplished in Jesus Christ, paid in full. It is done. You are innocent. You are declared righteous. And it is done by faith. And this is a past tense. This is something that has happened already. And so the second thing that we see in this is that we have, so we, are, we have been past and declared justified. And because we have been declared justified in the past, we have, in this the present tense, This is a current reality. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, I have peace with God, and it's told that it is in a present tense reality, my mind is so formed uh, by emotions, I think, well, that means I should have this, this kind of this euphoric feeling of peace. But that's not what that's referring to. You see, you got to keep in mind, especially in the context of this first century context, and he's writing to Rome, the capital city of the empire, and all of them would understand a certain phrase, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It is a reality that they would have been ingrained into is that through the conquest of Rome, through the victory of Rome, and ultimately because of the sword, because they had the ability to come in and bring, bring the sword and bring, in their view, order to what they deemed to be barbaric or counterfeit places. Through their conquest, they brought peace. There was an instability. There was a cessation of war and hostility. Obviously, that was propaganda. But what Paul is saying here is there is a true peace. There is a true cessation of of hostility. This isn't about a feeling of peace, but a cessation of hostility. You who were hostile, and if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, the Bible makes it clear. We are enemies. We are viewed as enemies of God. But by faith, there's a cessation of hostilities. There is peace. It is a present tense reality that comes by being declared righteous. There is a peace. But then it goes on to say in verse 2, this is the third we have. 
So not only do we have peace, not only we declare, okay, you are no longer an enemy of God. There is a peace between us, which in and of itself is glorious beyond measure. But then it says, in addition to that, because we are peace, we have obtained access. We have obtained access. What does it mean to have access? That word there refers to the right to petition. And in other words, not only are we no longer enemies, we're citizens, but we have the right to even approach God, to be in his presence. We have access. I am a citizen of the United States of America. I am as far as I know, a good citizen, declared a good citizen in right standing with the government. I don't think there's any warrants out for my arrest anywhere that I know of. Okay. Lord willing. But I don't have access to the president. If I wanted to come into him and say, well, I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'm at peace with the country. They say, that's great. You don't get access to the president. But by being justified by faith, not are we declared righteous, what it says is we have access. Not only that, it says we have this ability, we stand in this reality, this access. Now, what's interesting with this, and I don't want to get too nerdy and too geeky in the languages here, but when it says we have, keep in mind the first one we have, we were justified past tense, we were we have peace with God in the present, but when it says we have obtained access, that's in something called a perfect tense in the Greek. Now, what that means is that is something that was accomplished in the past, so it has a past set time in which you were granted access, so it's, it's something that accomplished in the past, but it has present realities. It has continuing, ongoing, present realities. So something that was accomplished in the past that continues to have unending reality within it. So it's saying you've been justified and now that gave you access that continues on. This is what you have. Now there's all kinds of scandals and talks going on. I don't want to get political about people who have tried to buy access to the president or to political figures within there. Because they acknowledge that there's incredible, there's incredible um, desire to have that kind of access. Now, we don't have access necessarily because we are going to be able to persuade God, so to seek, but to be in his presence, to be changed by him, to know him, to stand in that reality. Oh, man. That's incredible. Back at a previous church, we, there was a guy there who, um, who was friends, longtime friends and business associates with uh, one of the owners of the Texas Rangers. And so he, he, he was uh, really in with them, and he could ask them periodically to be able to get tickets, not just tickets to where, you know, out in the outfield, but actually tickets in the owner's box. And so he was able to petition him through his relationship one time to, uh, to invite me and my boys, Christian and Daniel, and some of the other pastoral staff at, at that church and their kids to be able to go and, on, and go to a game, a Rangers game, and be inside the owner's box. And not just sit inside the owner's box, to have all the privileges 
within that. So we got to eat these, I think they were Wagyu burgers. And they gave us this ice cream that was like, just gave you diabetes looking at it. It was just amazing. And we sat in this air-conditioned you know, room and you could go out into this balcony and it was just amazing. And I bring my boys and they were significantly younger then and, I try, and I'm trying to get through to them. I was like, boys, you need to understand. You need to relish every second of this because you are a Sullivan and this is not how we roll. This is not who we are. We are not people who have this kind of access. We don't have that kind of relationship. But if you're a believer, friends, you have access. You have the right to petition. You have the standing with God that is absolutely amazing. Once again, it says in verse 9, and we have now been justified. And so what you see in this section, this transaction, it begins, it kind of bookends with we have been justified in the beginning, and it's going to go on and talk, and in the end, we have been justified. Whereas first, it talked about we are justified by faith. This is our access. How do we have this access by faith? But how can, how can this justification be accomplished? Because of his blood. And so once again, it emphasizes the, the secure reality of that which we have. Once again, past tense. And then it ends in verse 11. We now have received reconciliation. And it just kind of summarizes all that we have been talking about. And so... We see this reality, all these things that we have, justification, we have access and right standing, we have peace. And what you see as well as we look at verses 3 through 5, not only has he given us this access, but what we see is the full trinity in display. We see that we have been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And in this process, the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, giving us hope. And what we see in verses 3 through 5 is not only is he just giving us this access, giving us this peace, but God is very present in every aspect, pouring his love out in us, shaping us and making us holy. He is very hands-on in this relationship that is ours. We are not alone within there. And, the, and here, even though the context doesn't bring up marriage, I can't help but think about marriage as we do that. Where the reason why marriage is so sacred for the Christians is because it's such a picture of the gospel and the reality of what we have and the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. Where we enter into this relationship, a relationship of promise, a covenant relationship in which we are promising to future love to the person that we're entering into this relationship with. And we're entering into it by faith, trusting in the love of that other person. And in reality, believing in that relationship that we are able to be who we are, to be fully vulnerable and naked before that person and know that we will still be loved. It's a picture, even, even the worst, most broken marriages have a little bit of a foretaste, a little bit of a taste 
Now, granted, even the best marriages is nothing but a pale taste to the full reality of our longings that is found in Jesus Christ. But it points to a, a greater hunger that we can see within there. That promise of that tenacious love, and we see that on display. God loving us, entering us into this relationship in which he calls the church his bride. Not because of past, of what we found in us to be lovely, but because of the fact that he will make us lovely through his power, through his love, through his kindness. And what we see is that that relationship, that hope, that present reality of that relationship of hope, it can be sure because of the anchor that hope is tied to. And so it goes on to say, and maybe you're saying, I get that, why that may be true for this person or that person, but it certainly doesn't feel true to me. It doesn't feel like I have that kind of hope. And so where can we find an anchor, something that tethers us to this hope? Well, it doesn't come from looking to yourself. Where does it come? It comes from looking to Jesus Christ, verses 6 through 11. Here is the tether that, that ties us to this hope. Is this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. So what do we see within this? It's about what God has done. That's where we look for our assurance. That's where we look for our hope. It isn't that we looked at us and at this moment he deemed us just or he deemed us worthy of this love because it highlights, it makes it very clear. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still in open hostility, God chose to do this. Sometimes we talk about a mother's love, right? A mother's love. This, this person was someone only his mother could love, right? This guy had a face only his mother could love. Now, I, I sometimes I talk about, you know, kind of my background and all the stuff that, that's going on. I had a wonderful mother. So I got to, you know, give her props. Um, and all the stuff growing up, I always knew that my mom loved me. Just never questioned that. But sometimes I questioned, if I'm being honest, how much I could trust her love. In other words, I knew she was pretty biased. And so when she would say, oh, son, you know, you're the handsome devil. You'll get a girl one day. You know, or, oh, you know what? You, you really should be doing this. Or, oh, you're so smart or something like that. Or, you know, she tried to pump me up. Sometimes I, I didn't always necessarily hear her or want to hear her or even want to go to her because I knew I wouldn't believe her. I was like, you know what? She's just saying that because she's my mom and she's kind of biased. She, she just sees me in a little, dif- little different light than everybody else sees me. She, she's got rose-colored glasses, so to speak, because she's my mom. 
But here's the thing that this passage makes clear. The love that we might, and you may be cringing right now because maybe you don't have that experience with your mom. and Your hearts long for that. But whether you had it or your heart simply longed for it, it's a pale, pale love compared to the just tenacious love of God for you. But here's the thing as well. God doesn't look at you with rose-colored lens. He is far more aware of your sinfulness, your brokenness, than even you are. He sees the depth of your sin, your weakness, your vulgarness, in ways that even you don't. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. To say that God loves you isn't to minimize your sin. Not in any way, shape, or form. The Bible makes it clear God sees us. He doesn't say, well, God just had this puppy dog love for you, and even though you, you messed up from time to time, you know, he just looked at you, and it's like a chip off the old block, and man, he just loved you. No, 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 no. While you were still weak, while you were ungodly, while you were sinners, open hostility. God saw it all and yet love. As Tim Keller is famous for saying, you are more sinful than you can ever possibly imagine. More loved than you could dare to dream. That's the reality of the gospel. And that is the anchor that holds us to hope. We experience this through a present tense faith. It is secured by a past sacrifice of blood that was given before you were righteous, before you were holy. And you'll never be worthy of it. You will never have earned it. And that's the point. We get the love. We get the beauty of his receiving us, filling us with his love, his power, his spirit to change us. And he gets the glory. He gets the glory for being the one who loves so deeply, so powerfully, so wonderfully. So where do we look for the assurance when we're feeling pressured, we're feeling down? not come from looking at ourselves, but looking to Jesus. So when pressure is crushing you down, friends, when pressure is crushing you, the weight of the pressure of this world is crushing you, not if, but when, cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Notice what it says in verses three through five, Right? We rejoice in our suffering. It's a reality. It's going to hit you. It's going to hit the believer. Know that it's coming. You will need to rejoice. But this isn't some sort of stoicism that's so popular right now when, on internet circles. This isn't a saying, well, 
Buck up, buddy, because when you get through it, you'll become stronger. You'll stand up more straight. You'll have more pride within yourself. No, it's not a stoicism. We see he's a God of compassion who's there ever present with his love being poured out upon us. And that is a reality, by the way. When it says his love has been poured out upon us, that's, if we're not paying attention, we miss that reality because typically, especially what you see, you're looking back, it's wrath that gets poured out. But here, it's actually love is poured out. And it's, once again, in that perfect form. It's a continuous thing. Continuously, never ending, being poured out upon us. But it calls us to look to Christ in the midst of that. Now, what that means is not that you go around and compare your suffering. That's not where hope's well, you know, I'm suffering. But you know what? This person's suffering more, so mine's not that big. So I need to, that, that's trying to deal with your suffering by looking to somebody else and saying they've got it worse. That's not where it tells us to look, to find hope. It doesn't tell us to look to ourselves and say, well, your suffering's not too bad. You're big enough to handle this. That's looking to yourself for a sense of hope. Regardless of the size of the scope or the nature of the suffering, whether it's physical suffering, emotional suffering, depression, anxiety, persecution, relationship trauma, whatever it may be, it is calling you not to look to self, but look to Jesus. To say, what is the purpose of it? The suffering produces endurance which produces character, which produces hope. So in other words, it gives us hope, but it becomes a circular nature. We hope, and it continues, as we go through this process, he continues to make even more hope. So we're not looking inside and saying, well, do I just have enough hope? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in the midst of that. Three different times it says that we are to rejoice. Now, I actually don't like that translation, rejoice, in the ESV. It's, the better translation is boasting. And what's interesting within that is the word boasting has been used multiple times in the book of Romans and always in the negative sense. Always in the negative sense. That, that are the Jew who boasts in the law, but saying when you boast in the law, all that brings is wrath. But here he says, having been justified by faith, there is a boasting, there is a rejoicing. There's a boasting in what, who God is and what he's done. It is turning our hearts and our affections not inside us and looking to ourselves, but looking to Jesus. And so what this calls us to do is to cling to the richness of Christ and all that he has given us, all that we have. We cling to it. And as we cling to Christ, what that does is it enables us to release our grip on the burdens that crush us down, the expectations of this world that crush us. You see, as we cling to Christ and turn our hearts to him and him alone, that frees us to be able to love as he is loved. Why? 
Because we're not looking for some sort of reciprocal exchange. If I love you, are you loving me back? Am I loving you good enough? Are you returning that love to me good enough? I'm secure. I'm satisfied in my relationship with Christ. That frees me to just love you. That frees me when we're in conflict. I don't have to start fighting for my side. I'm justified by Christ. I don't need that other person to declare me righteous. It frees me to love as Christ is love. So I hold on tenaciously to the grip of who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. It releases us. You want to love others well without being worn out? Cling to Christ. Clinging to justification by faith. Do you want to be free from the weight of never feeling like you are measuring up? That you do so much and it just never seems to be enough? Cling to Christ. Justification by faith. Cling to Christ. Christ offers you his love. A love which you long for. The love that you crave. But it doesn't come through earning that love. It doesn't come through finding a magic formula that enables you to become disciplined enough for that love. It doesn't come from you feeling being surrounded by people who appreciate all that you do, as much as and as good as that is. And for us on, on days like today, for us to show our appreciation, that is, that is what the Bible says to honor those who are worthy of honor, right? But if we're not receiving that, We look to Christ. We look to Christ. And that turns us off even ourselves. It turns us off looking for validation and hope from others, but also validation and hope from ourselves because what do we often do? Did I do right enough by God? Did I believe enough? Did I say the right? Was I contrite enough? And we constantly turn our eyes ever more inward. Rather, we look Constantly to him, to his sufficiency, to all that he has done. And give ourselves fully to Jesus Christ in trust. Trusting that he will be the one who fills us with his life. It's not about a feeling. But it's about trust. It's about where do we put our eyes? Where do we put our hope? Place it in Jesus Christ. We're going to move into our time of response. And, you know, in the past, a lot of times we've done our response, we've kind of stood up and sung it like a praise song. But I want to invite you this morning, just go ahead and stay seated. As you reflect on this message and as you reflect on the song that's being sung. And ask yourselves in the midst of whatever you're going through. Where are your eyes? Where are you looking to for hope? Whether you've been a believer or maybe you're interested in becoming a believer. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about your need for Jesus Christ this morning. Turn to him. Look to him by faith. Ask God to allow that truth to penetrate your heart and to change your life. To be justified and to rejoice in nothing but being justified by faith. And allow him to change you from the inside out. Father, we thank you for this goodness. 
Lord, we need this reality to just be hammered home to us because we are dull of hearts. We want to find our justification in what we do or what other people do. But what you have given us in the fullness of Jesus Christ is beyond measure. Enable us by to have eyes of faith that we might see it this morning and trust in it. That we put aside our skepticism, that we put aside our, our longings to be justified by something else, and to place our hope fully in nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Turn our hearts towards Him by faith. And fill us with your Holy Spirit as your love is poured out upon us without measure. In Jesus' name.